All right, we are back. Someone else we need to talk to in 2014 is James Bamford, author of The Shadow Factory, also Body of Secrets and The Puzzle Palace. He's the uh, the go-to guy that's been writing about the NSA for decades. We would do well to quote from his final words, closing the final chapter of The Shadow Factory. Said James Bamford, There is now the capacity to make tyranny total in America. Only law ensures that we will never fall into that abyss, the abyss from which there is no return. And we don't know about you, but the notion that laws are going to save us is, uh, is a concept we find rather perturbing. We may want to also bring on this program Albert Lynn, professor of law at UC Davis. He had a piece in last Sunday's Sacramento Bee addressing the fact that new laws need to keep up with the latest technology. To quote from his special to the B, The NSA surveillance activities revealed by Edward Snowden shocked the American public and the world. We live in a world of drones and hackers, a world where extensive surveillance is widely acknowledged as possible. But the reach of NSA surveillance, the agency's lack of restraint, and the collusion of industry in furthering its activities still have stunned many Americans. He notes later in the piece that laws must treat technology, health, and the environment as fundamentally related. We must reorient lawmaking in a way that acknowledges the transformative power of technology, recognizes the consequences of its use, and incorporates public input and awareness throughout the technology development process. But there is a huge pushback going on. Last month, the Bee also published a, uh, a piece, reprinted it from the Miami Herald, coming from Edward Wasserman, described as Dean of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Commenting on Snowden's file releases and the WikiLeaks files, said Wasserman, The Snowden material does not, by and large, consist of sensitive information the spy masters have scraped up, but instead illustrates a much more serious matter, their breathtaking capacity to scrape. That capacity, it seems, is unimaginably broad and deep and encompasses practically all public communication systems, phones, emails, corporate intranets, social media, the world's mightiest search engines, the cloud, almost anything digital. The picture that emerges is of a stupendously vast surveillance system, and in the weeks and months to come, I think we'll hear more about the momentous potential consequences of all this that U.S. spymasters have been so successful that their capacity has been woven into the infrastructure of the Internet itself. That's the big one, and that's the fear that is already driving Germany, India, Russia, China, and the European Union to push for the United Nations to take a greater role in Internet governance. He goes on to note that Oxford Internet analyst Ian Brown warns of a balkanization of the hitherto global system as national and regional subsystems arise, offering their people cover from the ubiquitous U.S. digital eye and creating networks that don't traverse U.S. territory where monitoring is so much easier. Said Wasserman, I can't help but think that something will be lost if the Internet collapses in this way and the promise of globalized informational freedom falls victim to a fearful government's quest for fail-proof security and total control. Well, yes, we here at Radio Parallax agree that would be bad. We do have to admire Edward Snowden for the fact that he's got something like 56,000 documents sequestered away and he's just releasing them one by one. Particularly since 
He releases one or two documents, and all this outcry comes says, no, 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 that's not true, which allows him to just sort of step back and say, oh, yeah? How about this? The hair-raising stories keep coming. On the 5th of this month, uh, Barton Gelman and Ashkan Soltani in the Washington Post reported the following. The National Security Agency is gathering nearly 5 billion records a day on the whereabouts of cell phones around the world, according to top-secret documents, enabling the agency to track the movements of individuals and map their relationships in ways that would have been previously unimaginable. Talking about this, uh, The Economist said that the credibility of America's National Institute of Standards and Technology, which sets American cryptographic standards with the help of the NSA, has been dented by Mr. Snowden's revelations. On November 1st, it announced it would review the way it carries out its work in an effort to rebuild trust. The unspoken implication was that it would try harder to stop spooks attempting to slip unreliable technology past its vetting procedures. The magazine noted other security experts are re-examining existing products. Dr. Matthew Green of Johns Hopkins University and colleague Ken White are leading a forensic audit of TrueCrypt, a popular program that enciphers a user's hard disks, but which displays some odd-looking behavior and has rather murky origins. It is open source, noted the magazine, but its designers are anonymous and are thought to live in Eastern Europe. Hmm. It's pretty clear that the big internet firms are not happy about being wrapped up with the NSA and uh, the concerns of their customers that um, their privacy is being invaded. And apparently uh, all of this eavesdropping that's done directly by checking out what Google and Yahoo are doing, um, well, it takes place outside of the U.S. in some cases, so a Approval from a FISA court isn't required to tap the information. So all this notion, all these ideas that were protected by FISA courts apparently isn't so reassuring. Note of the Sacramento Bee in an editorial last June, referring to the FISA court. They said the last three years, the judges approved every single one of the 5,179 applications. Forty of them were modified before permission was granted. One was withdrawn by the government before ruling. The numbers are similar in previous years, according to groups that keep track. From 1979 through 2009, the court approved a total of nearly 28,800 requests, modifying about 400. It rejected 11, while the government withdrew about 20. Noted the B, it looks more like a rubber stamp than an independent and vigilant watchdog. Watching Al Jazeera talk about Edward Snowden and relation to the case, they, uh, they replayed some of the testimony by um, Michael Clapper, I think it is, before Congress, explaining how um, they had thwarted, the NSA had uh, 58 different terrorist attacks domestically, thanks to their, uh, their surveillance. As Al Jazeera and others pointed out, when further information was requested about, well, specifically, which, which attacks did you thwart, it turned out the number was something less than 58, it was apparently instead two. And at one point, they cut to Dianne Feinstein, who's the Senate Intelligence Committee, who's supposed to be exhibiting some oversight of the NSA, talking about how, oh my goodness, the, the idea of reining these people in is ridiculous. <laughs> and one commentator was talking about how, you know, if Dianne Feinstein and her committee doesn't want to exert any control over the NSA and wants to turn them loose, that's just not good. So we agree with Professor Albert Lynn of UC Davis that... Uh, 
laws do need to keep up with the latest technology. We wonder where those laws are going to come from if our legislators want to turn loose these agencies to do what they will. In fact, we should note that the NSA's head, Keith Alexander, is an unabashed advocate for more weapons in the hunt for information about the nation's adversaries. I should put that in quotes, the nation's adversaries. He clearly views its collections of metadata as one of its most powerful resources. NSA analysts can exploit that information to develop a portrait of an individual, one that is perhaps more complete and predictive of behavior than could be obtained by listening to phone conversations or reading emails, experts say. Well, that's great, but dear listener, do you want the NSA snooping into your online address book? Online address books? Some weeks back, the Washington Post via Gelman and Sultani noted for some recent releases of Edward Snowden, that the National Security Agency is harvesting hundreds of millions of contact lists from personal email and instant messaging accounts around the world, many of them belonging to Americans. This collection program, which had not been disclosed before, intercepts email address books and buddy lists from instant messaging services as they move across global data links. Citing some specifics, apparently on a single day last year, the NSA's Special Source Operations Branch collected 444,000 email address books from Yahoo, 105,000 from Hotmail, 82,000 from Facebook, 33,000 from Gmail, and 22,000 from unspecified other providers. Of course, part of the problem with the NSA and other uh, spy agencies snooping on us is that the companies themselves are really keen to gather a lot of data about us so that they can sell it to advertisers or supposedly make advertising more efficient, giving us only those ads that are likely to be successful. Writing in the New York Times, Claire Kane Miller and Samini Sengupta wrote on October 6th, Once, only hairdressers and bartenders knew people's secrets. Now, smartphones know everything, where people go, what they search for, what they buy, what they do for fun, and when they go to bed. That's why advertisers and tech companies such as Google and Facebook are finding new ways to track people on their phones and reach them with individualized, hyper-targeted ads. And they're doing it without cookies, those tiny bits of code that follow users around the Internet because cookies don't work on mobile devices. You know, I think sometimes cartoonists manage to cut to the heart of all these discussions and in a few panels uh, outline the issue. Walt Handelsman of Newsday was printed in the B last Sunday in four panels that uh, are fairly succinct. Panel one, guys looking at an NSA computer saying, people say we've taken spying too far. Second panel, NSA guy, people say we're violating their civil liberties. Third panel, people say we're invading their privacy. Final panel. People like Ned Fleber of 23 Clover Lane, who goes to Hooters every Thursday night, but tells his wife Tanya he's working late. We're giving an attaboy to uh, Al Jazeera, deservedly, we think, but we also want to give one to C-SPAN, which uh, last week aired an extended uh, session, I guess it was, of of the British Parliament, some sort of parliamentary uh, committee looking into this matter of uh, Edward Snowden's leaks. If you can't find that uh, C-SPAN segment, you may be able to go to The New Yorker, October 7th of this year's edition, which had an an excellent article about Alan Rusbridger, described as the unflappable editor of The Guardian. Noted the piece in The New Yorker, 
correlated on the C-SPAN segment. Since June 5th, The Guardian had, had been publishing top-secret digital files provided by Edward Snowden, a former contract employee of the NSA. In a series of articles, the paper revealed that the NSA, in the name of combating terrorism, had monitored millions of phone calls and emails, as well as the private deliberations of allied governments. This earned him a lecture from Jeremy Haywood, described as the Cabinet Secretary to Prime Minister David Cameron. Haywood warned Russ Bridger that the Guardian was in possession of stolen government documents. He said, we want them back. Unlike the U.S., Britain has no First Amendment to guard the press against government censorship. Russ Bridger worried the government would get a court injunction to block the Guardian from publishing not only the current story, but future national security stories. Russ Bridger replied that the files contained information that citizens in a democracy deserve to know, and he assured Haywood that he had scrubbed the documents so that no undercover officials were identified or put at risk. This is a huge story, and right now I'm talked out on it. So let's, uh, let's move on to some other stuff. We will continue to follow this in 2014. How could we not? All right, another story we're going to f- follow next year is this matter of the downtown arena in Sacramento and the current effort to uh, put a vote before the public on whether public funds should be used to support this effort. An opposing group to this arena plan, or at least the uh, public funding of it, Stop, Sacramento taxpayers opposed to pork, has apparently achieved enough signatures to get this in the ballot. We'll talk about that in a minute, actually. But as an aside, I want to note that um, some people think it'd be great once we get this new arena to just light it up. Piece by Tony Bizjack and the Bee noted last month that um, with the new Kings Arena in the works for the downtown plaza near K Street, city officials and business leaders are talking about ways to use lighting as a major calling card for the arena district, including LED lights that would flash product ads on the sides of buildings or simply turn building facades into massive canvases for dramatic light shows. The saddest part in this piece about how we might have just that much more light pollution in the Sac Metro area doesn't appear to quote anyone who thinks this is a bad idea. Well, let's go on record here Radio Parallax is saying, we think it's a bad idea. And in other bad ideas related to the Sacramento Kings, well, let's just quote from the New York Times, piece by Joyce Cohen. National Football League teams are racing this season to secure the title of loudest outdoor stadium in the world. The Seattle Seahawks, who boast that their fans caused a small earthquake after a 2011 touchdown, apparently verified by new scientists, acclaimed their crowd's record decibel level in September after an effort orchestrated by the fan group Volume 12. Apparently in November, the Sacramento Kings set a record for the loudest roar at an indoor facility. The sellout crowd of 17,317 at Sleep Train Arena reached 124.9 decibels during a first quarter timeout, then hit 126 decibels before the start of the fourth quarter to break the previous Guinness Book of World Records mark of 106.6 set by the Milwaukee Bucks in 2008. This is such a great way to put our state capital on the, on the map, isn't it? The piece quoted a Seahawks season ticket holder, James Filsinger, saying, People say, yeah, man, my ears are ringing, but it's always in a fun, upbeat kind of way. 
Contrasting that is Charles Lieberman, professor of otology at the Harvard Medical School, who said there's increasing evidence that if your ears are ringing, damage is happening. There's something irreversible going on. So, okay, Kings fans and Seattle Seahawks fans, might be time to make sure you have earplugs when you go watch a sporting event. Now, uh, the arena is supposed to represent a great renovation on the Sacramento side of the Sacramento River, but over on the Yolo County side, there's uh, some things we have doubts about. Apparently, 13 native western sycamore trees can be found in a row at the West Sacramento Gateway to the Tower Bridge. If you've driven over the Tower Bridge, you may have noticed these uh, large stately trees. Well, they're all threatened now by development. Noted Daryl Smith in the B. The trees and the West Sacramento Conservancy's uphill battle to save them are an example of the push-pull between a restless city in the midst of a dramatic growth spurt and conservationists who hope to preserve the community's natural and historic landmarks. Yes, apparently the Capitol Yards are going to be a $50 million, 272-unit apartment project in the Rayleigh's Landing area. The Sycamores, city officials said, are unlikely to survive the development. I've been learning a lot of late of of how things are getting done uh, in a political sense, something we'll be sharing in the weeks to come. But this article on the trees does provide a little bit of illumination in this area. The article notes that Scottsdale, Arizona-based project developer Wolf Company owns the land where the trees sit and can remove the trees if it wishes. They quote Dan Nethercott, a locally-based Wolf Development Director, offering few words in the Sycamore's fate, saying that his firm had heard from the West Sacramento Conservancy, saying, quote, We're investigating. We're talking with the city and trying to evaluate the situation, end quote. They also quote Rob O'Day, a Wolf spokesman, who did not address the trees directly, but told the bee that their fate isn't something we take lightly, adding that projects like Capitol Yards contains a pragmatic reality of redevelopment, which I think translates to screw the trees. I think no matter where you may be hearing this, dear listener, whether it's anywhere from Davis to Chico to Helsinki, Finland, these sorts of things are just going on everywhere. We have so much more I want to talk about regards Jerry Brown's effort to suck more water out of the Sacramento Delta and evil developer Phil Angelides' efforts to ruin a good neighborhood in Sacramento, which happens to be mine. But we're going to defer that and instead talk about maybe some funner stuff in our third segment. So let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Right now, we may take a slight detour to Disneyland. 